Well, good morning. My name is Billy Gifford. If you don't know me, I'm the executive pastor here on staff. And like Tyler said, we've been going through a church series. So if you haven't been here the past few weeks, that's okay. We have plenty of weeks to go. We're, we're, just, we're not even halfway. So we're going to really dive into what is the church. Because obviously, I think we're starting to understand, at least at large, it's not just the building, right? It's the people around you. Yeah. So we're going to dive into that a little more today. Um, so if you remember, the past few weeks, Tyler shared on the church is the body. Who remembers the body? The church is the body. Yeah. Yeah. A, few pe- a Christian remembers. Okay. <laughs> Way to go, Christian. But he, he shared about just how we are supposed to be connected to one another, not divided, submitted to the head who is Christ. And then last week, he shared on the church is the bride. Who remembers that one? Trying to connect it all so we don't lose track of the church. Okay, the bride and how we're supposed to be faithful as, as the church is faithful to Jesus and how, how the bride is faithful to the groom, we're supposed to be faithful to Christ. And this week, <clears throat> the message is the church is the believers. So the bees, are you following the bees, bride, body believers? So really, I hope just to answer one question today, and that is, what actually is a believer? <clears throat> like, what, what, what is a believer? Like, if I believe in God... Does that make me a believer? So I'm in the church? Or do I have to believe that Jesus actually died and rose again? Like, historically, that's a fact. Does that make me a believer? Or do I have to believe that this is the authority? Like, what actually defines, okay, biblically, you check, you are now a believer. And so I hope to bring clarity to that this morning. For some of us in this room, this will be just a fresh reminder of what the Christian faith is really all about. And seriously, I, I was putting this message together, and I was just reading, and I was like, wow. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) We need reminders often of what actually took place and where where we stand with God. And and then for others, um, I do believe this will bring clarity on how how one actually becomes a member of the church of God by becoming a true believer. Yeah, so my story was that I, I was an attender of church for most of my life, and I didn't realize I wasn't a Christian until way later, until I was like early in high school. And... I wasn't a member of the church, and I just want to make this very clear. I think there may be people here this morning who are attending, but maybe not actually members according to God's definition of a believer. See, Jesus, for two and a half years, when he was in his ministry, he actually didn't even mention the word church. Did you all know that? It came in a little bit later near the end, right before his transfiguration. And he said to his disciples, who do you say that I am? That I am? And his disciples, or Simon Peter answered, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's when Jesus said, yes, and upon that rock, your confession of me, Peter, I will build my church. And so God's intention is that everyone who shares that same confession, that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, will be members of that church. And so I want to say, I think that there are many people who have grown up around the church and I have a fear that many people have been inoculated with Jesus. So this is just, I'm going to preface this. So, so you know there's a vaccine going around right now for COVID. Thank God, right? Praise the Lord. But what a vaccine does is it gives you a little bit of the uh, imitation of the virus so that your body can build immunity to it. And I fear that many people have grown up with a little bit of Jesus and they've kind of built an immunity to think, yeah, I've got the real thing, when really their body doesn't have the real thing. And I, I, I just... That's what fooled me growing up was my church attendance, was my opening my Bible and, and not saying bad words. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a true believer. Check. And again, Jesus warned us many times not to be deceived. 
If you were at Life Group, last, last, Life Group at 1803 last Wednesday, we read a little bit from Ephesians 4, and one of the verses we read was Ephesians 4, 14, that just said, don't get carried away by every wind of doctrine and all these deceitful things. And so I want to make sure we don't get carried away this morning. We, it's important to know what's true. That's what I'm trying to say. And so I want to share a small, silly story, but just to, to give a little example, um, this is kind of a confession maybe, for most of my life, <clears throat> I actually thought Whataburger was Waterburger, meaning H2O. Anyone else? <clears throat> okay. Oh, I just felt so relieved right now. Thank you, guys. This is, like, this is why it's good to confess sin. You're like, oh, I'm not alone. <clears throat> I'm not kidding. Literally until my, I was like halfway through college, that I was like, oh, it's what a burger. Oh, because people would ask me, even my parents would be like, you want to get a water burger? I was like, a water burger? No, thank you. That sounds disgusting. Uh, and so I was missing out. I, I really did. But I, I had some just a few days ago, so it's okay. But I didn't know the truth, right? It took me until I knew the truth, and then I didn't realize what I was missing out on, right? So I finally realized the truth. It got me some of that, you know, the HBBQ CSS. Anyone know what that is? Honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich, HBBQCLS. You can order that that way, I think. I've always done that. <clears throat> that was my go-to, but truth matters, okay? <laughs> of course, that, that had no real impact on my life, other than it probably kept me healthier for a few more years. Um, but there are some really deep truths in the Christian faith that have major impacts on our lives, for eternity, in fact. And so if we don't hold, hold to these specific truths, we may not be believers according to the biblical meaning. So what is a believer? <clears throat> the true gospel <clears throat> has two points. And I'm, I'm going to try to stay organized. I think I'm working in twos. I, I don't know. It just kind of happened that way. So the true gospel has two points. That is, there's good news and there's bad news. And I want to start with the bad news first because that's where we're supposed to begin. The bad news comes first because... It's, it's kind of like a doctor who discovers a cancer in his patient and has to break it to them that unless you get immediate help, they're not going to survive. So that's bad news. It's the scalpel that cuts into you and, and hurts a little bit, but it's going to remove that tumor that's destroying you. And so what would we say of a doctor who discovered cancer in his patient but then didn't want to hurt his feelings, and so instead of saying it, just said, oh, it's, it's probably just a cold just go home, get some rest, you're going to be okay. The patient goes home happy, but guess what? That doctor would probably lose his license to practice because he just doomed his patient to die of cancer because he was not willing to tell him the truth, the hard truth, the bad news first. And so we need to begin with the bad news. And within the bad news, I want to highlight two major points, I'm working with twos. And that is our fallen nature and the judgment to come. A little heavy. Okay. The fallen nature and, our, and the judgment to come. So fundamentally, as human beings, we really like to believe that we're actually really good people, right? Like we want to believe we're really good. And in fact, if we ever do anything bad, it's usually the pressures of life, the circumstances that cause us to do those bad things. It's the idea that if everyone just left me alone, I would be a really good person. Like if that person didn't do something or this person didn't say something, if, if life didn't happen, I would be good, you know? If I was the only person on the planet, I promise you I'm a good person. But that, I mean, that's the truth. We, we really think that, and, and that's what we think is true, and that's not true. And 
We can see this in children. If you have a child, you already know where I'm going with this. <clears throat> you never have to teach a child how to lie, how to hit, how to steal, how to be selfish. It's in them. Why is it in them? The sin that originated in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned has been passed down through the generations. It says in Romans 5:19, by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. And so I, I have two kids. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old. Her name's Adeline. They're both at home sick. But I have a two-and-a-half-year-old named Adeline and a one-year-old named Liam. And Adeline is so sweet. They get along so well sometimes. And she will go over to Liam, and he's just sitting on his bum, and she'll just start, like, petting his head and kissing him. And then he might just make a sound like, eh, like just one thing she didn't like, and it just turns into a boom, like a smack on the head, like full smack. And then there are other times, like, he... If, you have, if you've seen him, he doesn't crawl really well yet. He's working on that. So he does a little butt scooch. And so Adeline will be over here, and Liam would be butt scooching this way. And she doesn't like him doing that. And so she'll, be like, she'll like stare him down like, no. And then he'll like take a scooch, and she'll just run at him and just boom. And we're like, Adeline, no, we got to get that. And so some of y'all parents are all like, yep, you can stop preaching. I know where you're going. Amen. Um, when I worked as an engineer, I had a coworker who was a devout Muslim. And we would get lunch every now and then and share our faiths. We just enjoyed talking with each other. There was no pressure on each of, either of us, and we were just sharing our faiths. And there was one specific point that we couldn't agree on that drastically divided us. And that was this point, that he didn't believe that humans were bad by nature. The belief he shared was that actually humans are good by nature, and Allah is merciful for the times when there's external things that cause us to do bad things. And so without the understanding that humans are fallen and wicked at heart, there is no bridge for the gospel. There is no need for a savior. And so to him, Jesus was a wonderful teacher and an incredible prophet, but the son of God and savior of mankind? No. You see, a pig, that is, a pig that is kept in a barn, nice and tidy, can actually be very clean. But you let him out in the yard for about 15 minutes, what's going to happen? He'll be rolling around in the dirt and the mud. Why? Because that's the pig's nature. And if you put people in the right environment, give them a nice family, give them a nice house, give them nice neighbors, give them nice everything, they can behave right. But it's not, it, it doesn't, the outside is not what matters. It's the inside that matters. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 23, when talking to the Pharisees, he said, you clean the outside of the cups, but the inside is filthy. It's filthy. So the pig may be clean on the outside, but inwardly it just wants to roll in the mud. We have to remember that God judges the heart. Romans 3, 10 says this, there is none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. There is no one who does good. In Romans 3, 23, a few verses later, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul, the great apostle Paul, came to this conclusion. He said in Romans 17, 7, 18, 7 verse 18, so that sounds confusing. He said this, In me there is no good thing, which is quite literally the opposite of what we believe of ourselves. We actually think we're pretty good, and then, again, other things cause us to be bad. But Paul believed, 
if I've done anything good, it's because of the influence on me. But in and of myself, there is nothing good. I have no good thing in me. And he, end, he ends by saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? <clears throat> the truth about humanity, about you and about me, is that our nature has been corrupted and we love darkness rather than light. That's the bottom line. At the end of the day, whatever it looks like on the outside, in our hearts, without Jesus, we love darkness rather than light. And if we don't find a way to deal with this body of death, this nature within us that left alone goes off into sin, we will face the realities of a good, just, and perfect God who said the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. So that goes to my second point under the bad news, <clears throat> which is the coming judgment. Okay, hang with me. So do we think that God can remain indifferent about how we have treated his creation and what we've done in this life? Do you think he sits up there saying, you know, boys will be boys, sweep it under the rug? No, it's here that we actually have to come to terms with what the Bible calls the wrath of God. Don't, we don't hear it too much these days, but this is actually part of the gospel. Let me read it to you. Romans 1, verse 16 through 18, it says this. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I have found that less and less people today believe that one day they will actually have to stand before God and answer to Him for what they've done in their lives. People are actually more afraid of dying than they are of death, right? As long as it's like quick and painless, then it's not so bad. What happens afterwards, I'm not really worried about. I'm sure it'll be fine. That's what most people think. <laughs> they don't believe that what they've taken in this life they're going to have to pay for in the next. Romans 14, 10 through 12, puts it this way, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. There are three important facts here that are actually very um, difficult to convince people of. Um, when I say difficult, I mean impossible. And that is sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. I've never been able to persuade anyone and that's why it says in John 16, verse 8, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Mm, yeah, yeah. He will convince the world of sin, of righteousness. He'll convince the world of righteousness, which is the righteousness of God in Christ, meaning there is a standard. There is a way I am actually supposed to live. And then he'll convince the world of sin that we have fallen short of that standard. And in fact, it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, however you think about how far you've fallen. If you break one link in the chain of God's righteousness, you've broken the chain. If you run one red light and you get pulled over by a cop and you get a ticket, you can't say, well, officer, I stopped at the past five and I plan on stopping the next five and my, all, all the way home. Right. He's going to say, great, here's your ticket. You broke the law. Right. You see, sin leads to death. James 1.15, sin gives birth to death. And the only reason we think we're good by nature is because we compare ourselves to others. 
But I just want to say something. A dead man is a dead man. It doesn't matter if they're dead for 100 days or one day. There's no difference. There's no life in the body. And so when we compare ourselves, we usually say, well, I'm not as dead as that guy. I've been only dead for three days. That guy's been dead for three years. As if it matters. And I want, you to, I want to share with you, it doesn't matter. We have fallen short of that standard of righteousness. And when sin and righteousness meet, only one thing can happen. And that is judgment. And when we talk to people about these facts, it is the Holy Spirit who convinces them that they're true. And their hearts will begin to experience the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom that says, wow, I do need to get right with God. Only the Holy Spirit can convince a man. And the Bible teaches that there are two eternal destinations for the afterlife. One is heaven. We all like that one. We all want to go there. We all kind of understand that, sort of. And the other one is hell. And I want to say that there's been an argument that has kind of permeated culture time and again. It's not a new one. Um, but it goes like this. Well, I thought God was love, right? So how can a loving God send anyone to hell? We've all probably heard that question, if not thought it. Right? What about 1 John 4, 8? God is love. Doesn't that mean he would never do such a thing as to send anyone to hell? Well, before John describes God as love in this 1 John book, if you flip back a page, he gives another description for God. He says, God is light. 1 John 1, 5 and 6 says this, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is light. He is morally perfect. And therefore, he demands moral perfection from us. And if there is the darkness of sin in us, we cannot fellowship with him in heaven for eternity. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 6 this way, what fellowship has light with darkness? They do not have fellowship. <clears throat> so what would you say of a judge who had been presented a case and heard all the, and seen all the evidence, and it turns out this guy in front of him who really did commit this heinous crime is guilty, just said, you know, you're guilty, you committed the crime, but I'm feeling merciful today. My mercy bone is just kicking in and just said, you're free to go. Just don't do it again. We would revolt at that kind of judge because that's a corrupt judge. Justice didn't happen. True justice did not happen. And something within us stirs when we feel that, right? When so I mean, think of a bad crime. And if that guy, if the judge is like, yeah, you're guilty, but off you go, we're not okay with that. And we can understand that in the court of law, but do we realize it's the same with God in the court of heaven? Because he's a just God. In fact, in Psalm 89, 14, he says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of my throne. This means he has to balance the scales. Sin has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. You can't just sweep it under the rug and forget about it. <clears throat> so if a judge demands, let's say the punishment is a fine for a million dollars, there's two options. You pay the fine or you go to jail. Those are the only two options for true justice to occur. And it's the same with God. Except for us, 
we actually don't have the means to pay the fine. So we have found ourselves in a little dilemma. And we need to remember these, that the same person who taught us about the loving, sweet character and nature of God was also the one who told us about the indescribable realities of hell. Do you know who that person was? That was Jesus. And we can't just take the good things we like from what Jesus taught and ignore the hard things. We can't do that. As I've heard in a poem once, we've all worked in sin and death was minimum wage. And so it's these harder truths that actually show us why we need the good news of the gospel. We need the good news. So we cannot pay these debts. So let's move on to the good news. I think we could all use that right now. <laughs> That's the bad news. So the good news. So, now, so, so God had this task before him, which was how to get sin separated from the sinner so that he could destroy one and save the other. How do you do that? <clears throat> and he had to do it in a way that would respect our freedom, meaning he wouldn't force us to be good because that's not real goodness. That would keep us voluntarily loving him freely of our own choice, but in a way that would save us from the judgment that is to come. So if the first part of the gospel is bad news, that we're dying in our sin, the second part of the gospel is good news, and that is Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Savior. And just like there are two parts to the bad news, there are two parts to this good news. See, I'm working in twos, okay? Those two parts are repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And it has to be both. It's like an electrical switch. There are two wires that are not touching. And as long as they're not touching, there's no power. But you flip the switch, those wires touch, and you can, you can power light to the room. It's like that with repentance and faith. If you have just repentance, you don't have salvation. This is what Martin Luther experienced back in the day. If you read a little bit of his history, he would repent, repent to the point where he's beating himself, but he had no faith. And if you just have faith without repentance, you do not have salvation. <clears throat> so I'm going to get a little scripture heavy just for a minute because I want you to see that this message of repentance is not just from John the Baptist in the wilderness being crazy and eating honey. Because I think some of us may think that's like, yeah, wasn't that his message back then? And so I'm going to dive in. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it says this. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So very simply, he was preaching, unless you repent, you can't enter heaven. It's not complicated. And that's actually what got him thrown into prison. But once he was in prison, Jesus took the baton, and he carried that same message. <clears throat> In Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. A couple more. Luke 13, 1 through 5. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise 
perish. Okay, one more. Luke 24. This is after his resurrection. Now he's commissioning his disciples. It says this in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. To all the nations. There's a few places where all the nations is mentioned by Jesus. One is in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says the Holy Spirit will clothe you and you'll have power to be a witness to all the nations. Another one is Matthew 28, 18. We may know this one a little better. It's go and make disciples of all the nations. And the last one is this one in Luke 24, which is repentance will be preached for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. We can't miss that message. <clears throat> and it didn't stop with Jesus. This, this message the apostles carried after he ascended to heaven. Paul writes in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. I think the amplified version of that is life groups. <laughs> house to house. Every time I see house to house, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Verse 21, he's solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So even after many days after the day of Pentecost, Paul is preaching the same thing, repentance and faith. And I know what some of y'all might be thinking right now, okay? I, I can hear it. I'm prophetic, you could say. No. <laughs> repentance doesn't really sound like good news category. Like, shouldn't that be under the bad news category? Like, I know you're trying to work with twos and that mess up your numbers, but you're telling me, me to stop doing what I want to do is good news. Like, why is that good news? Uh, good question. Why does Jesus say in Mark, what we just read in Mark chapter 1, 14, he says, why does he include repentance and faith in the gospel, meaning good news, of God? And I will say, because repentance is a gift. It is a gift. And when the Holy Spirit prompts you within your conscience to repent, take it. It's a gift. So I'm just going to go off a, a small tangent. So God has given us what's called our conscience. And it's given us to alert us when we're stepping outside of God's boundaries or we're about to step outside of God's boundaries. I would say that our conscience is to our soul as pain is to our body. So for example, okay, Let's say you're like a third grade Tyler Hardy and you're walking and you, get, you step on a board and you get a nail stuck in your leg, right? You feel the pain. Your body uses that pain to send you a message to say something is wrong. And if it weren't for that pain, that might just stay in there, cause infection. Oh, there goes your leg. Or something worse. I don't know. I don't want to get gruesome. But when our conscience alerts us, with the pain, then we can actually act to remove the nail. Without that, we, can't, we don't even have the knowledge to act, to do something. And so when we get that alert within us, or in our conscience that says, hey, warning, don't go that way. Hey, you need to turn around. Hey, you know, the inner flashing lights, we have an opportunity to either agree with it or disagree with it. If you disagree with it, you will go off into sin. But if you agree with it, then we can act to turn away from it. And that is called repentance. So it's a gift. It's your conscience alerting you combined with your, act to, your will to act. And then you can turn. And so yes, when you hear the word repentance, 
It sounds like, ugh, but really, it is a warning sign that says, if you keep going that direction, there's a cliff. You'll, you'll fall. We would all say, that is a gift. That is a good thing. Yes. Okay, so to get out of all the imagery for a second, repentance simply means turning away from sin toward God. You may not be completely free from that sin in that moment. Some may. But it, you can instantly have a change of heart. And that's what really repentance is all about. It's a matter of the heart. The question about repentance is, you used to love the sin. Do you now hate it? That is repentance. Yeah. Because there are actually many people who don't outwardly sin, but in their hearts they love it, and they would. It's like a thief who loves to steal, but is not going to steal right now because the police are watching. Right. Or like a man who loves to commit adultery but doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to get caught by his wife. It's like, okay, outwardly, we would maybe say, good job, you're, you're not sinning. But inwardly, they love sin. There's no true repentance there. Yeah. It's a matter of the heart. Repentance means you once loved to steal, now the very thought is repulsive. You once loved the idea of lusting, now when that temptation comes, you're like, wow, I hate that thing. Yeah. Rather than, I better not, because I don't want to get caught. The difference is one leads to saving grace. The other one is a broad path labeled heaven that leads to hell. It is the story of Zacchaeus. Y'all remember the story? This is repentance. Not just feeling sorry about cheating people of their money, but sorry enough to stop and sorry enough to make it right. True repentance rights the wrongs. I have a, a buddy who I helped lead to the Lord not too long ago, and we would talk about Jesus and faith and repentance, and he's just coming around to all these things. And <clears throat> one day he came to me saying, hey, do you think it's weird if I, like, give someone money? And I was like, that sounds great. Like, give it away. And then he goes, but um, I, I kind of owe them money. I was like, okay, all the more. You probably should definitely give them money. <laughs> and he was like, but is it weird if they don't know that I owe them? And I was like, oh, just, just tell me the story. <laughs> He began to tell me how at a party one time he had stolen some money from a friend. And more or less, the Holy Spirit had convicted him, and he wanted to truly repent. And so he did. He made it right. He, he had that awkward thing, hey, buddy, I, I took a few hundred bucks from you. Here, here it is with interest. Here's some more. That is true repentance. That is the fruit of repentance. It means I'm ready to be done with this sin and put it behind me forever. Okay, so what about true faith? This is the second part of the good news. True faith. We need true faith. To believe the facts of the death and the resurrection of Christ is one thing. But to believe what that accomplished for me is another thing entirely, completely different. Yeah. Faith is to take the truth of Scripture and apply them to me personally, to say Jesus died for me. He rose for me. He's coming back for me. <clears throat> we must answer the question, what does that mean for me? And so here's what it means. The life that Jesus lived was the only perfect life that was ever lived. And it was exactly the life that God actually demanded from all human beings. He demanded a perfect life. We couldn't do it. Jesus did it. And Jesus gave up that life, and then he gave it back. I'm going to explain. It's in these two facts of giving up his life and then giving it back that we have the fullness of what it means to believe in Jesus. You see, it's not just in the great teachings, not just in the miracles, not just in the truth he proclaimed, but in the life he lived that he was given up in death, 
and then the life he gave back in resurrection. This is why the apostles went around preaching his death and resurrection. Sometimes we only hear about one or the other. We hear about the death, and then Easter we hear about the resurrection. The apostles proclaimed both, his death and resurrection. And so what do believers believe about the death and resurrection? Uh, there's a lot of things I could share on this, and I'm just going to share one thing, and that is substitution. Substitution. On that cross in death, he took our place. And out of the tomb in life, he takes our place. Romans 6.8 says this, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There was a famous American evangelist back in the day named D.L. Moody. Some of y'all might have heard of him. But he traveled to Britain to preach uh, the gospel, and there were some clergymen there who were not really familiar with him, <clears throat> and so they were a little suspicious. And so they asked him to meet him in London where he'd be preaching. And they said to him, Mr. Moody, can you please write down all that you believe so we can check your theology? And he said, uh, I don't need to write it down. It's already in print. And they said, well, where can we find it? And he said, you can find it in the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. He said, gentlemen, while I'm in London, I will preach one thing, that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we owed a debt we cannot pay, so in perfect love and in perfect justice, Christ took our sins upon himself. To use one more judge example, and I'll try to wrap it up. Suppose I committed a crime, and my father is good, but he also happens to be the judge. So I'm standing before him in court. He's the judge, but he's also my father. He has to be just. So boom, I'm guilty. I owe a million dollars, or whatever the fine is. He has fulfilled his role as being a just and perfect judge. But what about a good father? The only way that to reconcile that is he takes off this judge's robes, he steps down, he goes to me as his father, and out of his own bank account, he writes a check. He says, you're guilty, but I'll pay it. Right there, you have perfect love and perfect justice coming together. That is what happened on the cross, guys. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus was willing to take my place in death and in life, that he was willing to die my death in my place and is willing to live my life in my place. And that is good news. That is good news. And we realize when we really see the dilemma we're in, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, where our sin and God's righteousness meet, we'll actually discover, and many of us probably have felt this before, that we're just drowning in our sin. That there's this lock around our ankles called sin. It's pulling us to the bottom of the ocean where judgment will meet us. But somewhere along the way, on our way down, Jesus came in. He took that lock off, put it on his ankle, and he took that all the way down for you where he met judgment on Calvary and he satisfied the wrath of God. A little child might put it this way. In death, he went down so we could go up. In life, we go down so he can go up. This means that I now can stand before God not with my own righteousness 
but with the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees his son, the only perfect life that's ever been lived, the life that he actually demanded we live. Which leads to my last point, um, which also has two points to it, of course. Uh, the final thing I'll say is that salvation is available today. Salvation is available. Because of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection, God can, first of all, treat me as perfect. The Bible calls that justification. And secondly, he can make me perfect. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. So God says, I'm prepared to treat you right now as a perfect son or daughter. I'm prepared to treat you as perfect. It's like the, the father of the prodigal son. When the son comes home, it's get the robe, get the ring, get the shoes, kill the calf. I'm going to treat him as perfect as if he's never been away. And then he says, I'm willing to make you perfect. And he's able to present you faultless. To present you faultless. He's able to actually turn, like in real life, turn a sinner into a saint. To actually make a bad person good. I mean, there are many people here, I would guess, that deep down they're like, I actually do just want to be good. He can turn an imperfect person perfect. The world will argue no one can be perfect. Maybe even the church would argue that. No one's perfect. You can't be perfect. But the gospel is that the God who demands perfection can make you perfect in Christ. This is the meaning of a true believer. So the final question is really, who wants to be perfect? I've noticed a tragedy in in people, and it's that sometimes we're pretty content with our sin. We're content with our faults. But we need to realize that we all will meet God either in our own imperfections to be judged, and then we lose everything that's good, or we meet him in the perfection of Christ, and we live with him forever for eternity. All right, y'all go ahead and stand, please. We'll stop right here. <clears throat> so just in response, uh, I think there are many of us here who just love a good reminder of what actually took place on the cross with the death and resurrection. It's like, wow, thank you, Jesus. That was me. I was just like, wow, thank you, Lord. And we just want to shout, like, hallelujah again. Um, there are others who have maybe exchange places with Christ in death, but not really in life yet. We find ourselves still struggling. Like, why am I still struggling with everything I'm doing and I just can't seem to really get aligned with Jesus? And I would say, have you, have you traded places with him in life? Have you allowed him to live? Have you died to yourself that Christ might live? And that's the response that many of us need this morning. And then lastly, I would say, there are some who still need his free gift of salvation who've never made that exchange at all yet, who feel the weight of sin still tugging on their leg, pulling them down. And I would say to you, today is the day of salvation. Hebrews 3, it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. So can I get a few leaders to come up for prayer? Um, Yeah, I just want everyone to bow their heads. I'm going to pray, um, and you can respond how you need to. But I do want to offer a chance for those who have maybe not seen the death and resurrection of Christ in this way and, and, and know in their hearts the Holy Spirit convincing them 
that, wow, I need to get right with God, and I've not known how to do so. So if that's you, if you feel like today, I need to get right with God. I want him to take my place in death, and I want him to make me perfect in life. I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand real quick, if that's you. One, two, a few people. Amen. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then also I just want every, anyone to come up to the front if you feel like, because one of the things that comes with the gospel message in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching, he says, repent. After they believed that Jesus was the Christ, he said, repent. And then he said, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there are some this morning who just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would welcome you, come up here, have someone to pray for you to receive the Spirit of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you did not leave us drowning in our sin. And we thank you that the cross, on the cross, you finished everything. You accomplished what we could not do. You lived the life that we could not live and you paid the price we could not pay. And I pray this morning that we would understand that a true believer walks in repentance and a true believer has faith. So fill us up this morning, God. Would you speak to each one of us and cause us to enter into that wonderful free gift of salvation this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.